Good morning. I have pet peeves. No. Do you have pet peeves? What is one of your pet peeves? What about flip-flops? Socks with flip-flops. Yeah, don't do that around Tim. Who else has a pet peeve? Being late? Not? Non-handicapped people parking in a handicapped spot. That's a mouthful. Okay, just don't do it. One more. Dictating one person's free will to another. You are so spiritual, Patrick. One of my pet peeves has to do with abbreviations to the name of the denomination that I'm a part of, the Church of the Nazarene. There have been churches, I'm not going to name any, but there have been churches that like to go just by the name the Naz. There's, I, there's something disrespectful about that. I'm not, just the Naz. Every day when I drive to work, this pet peeve is exacerbated when I drive by the highway sign, the little blue sign, 100 yards down from Staniels Road on 106 that says, New Beginnings Nazarene Church. That is not our name. We are New Beginnings Church of the Nazarene. I mean, of the, really? They couldn't fit in two little words like that on the sign so that our name would be correct? Because it makes a difference, folks. It, oh, oh, this is a pet peeve. Sorry, sorry. So this morning, I want to look at the, the name Nazarene. Uh, why was Jesus called a Nazarene? And what does it mean that we are members of the church of the Nazarene? This is important stuff, and I kid you not. In order to understand what it means to be a Nazarene, we need to step back in history and look at the province of Galilee. So just step back a few thousand years, if you would, in your mind. Galilee is the northernmost part of what was originally the Promised Land. Joshua led the Israelites into the Promised Land, and this Promised Land was divided among the 12 tribes. Galilee was the portion of territory that was primarily given to the tribes of Naphtali and Zebulun in the far northern part of the Promised Land. Under the reign of Solomon, the third king, the son of David, Solomon, uh, notorious or famous for the fact that he had built alliances with so many of the, the nations that surrounded Israel. He was uh, it was, he, he reigned over the, the greatest territory of, of, the, of, of Israel. Uh, he built these alliances with other people. And during his reign, he rewarded his Phoenician ally, King Hiram I of Sidon, with 20 cities in the land of Galilee. He, he awarded him 20 cities, which were soon populated by foreigners who were coming in from Sidon, the Phoenicians. 
Galilee was part of the ten tribes that broke away from the rest of Israel following Solomon's son Rehoboam's reign. It was during his reign that, uh, that he, uh, he refused to listen to his father's advisors and instead listened to those who were peers of him, young men who didn't have the wisdom that Solomon or his, Solomon or his advisors had. And so it ended up with 10 of the 12 time, tribes breaking off under the, the rule of Jeroboam, becoming the a northern kingdom that was called Israel. The two tribes, Benjamin and Judah, were left in the south, and that was called Judah. The Assyrians eventually conquered the northern kingdom of Israel, those 12 tribes, including the territory of Galilee. And what conquering nations would do back then to try to maintain their control over territories is they would evacuate or exile, remove a good number of people from the conquered territory and, and send them back to the motherland or off to some other territory that they controlled. And then they would move people from other nations that they had conquered into that territory. The wisdom of this is, of course, that you don't have a, a people who are cohesive, unified. You have people that speak, speak different languages and worship different gods, and, and they're not able to work together to try to throw off the control of the conquering nation. So that was the strategy. Exile a bunch of people from the nation you've conquered, move other people in there. And that's what happened to that northern part of Israel. Isaiah... 700 years before Christ, called Galilee a people living in darkness and a land of the shadow of death. It kind of gives you a sense of what the, the morale was like, what the moral lives of the Galileans was, if that's how Isaiah identified them. In the years leading up to the time of Jesus, the people in the southern kingdom, Judah, or it became known as Judea, mounted a plan to try to take over Galilee again. Here for centuries, it had been populated primarily with Gentile people. There had been intermarrying that had gone on. These 12, or the, the 10 tribes of that northern nation had been exiled, virtually disappeared from human history. Don't know where they are anymore. But in the meantime, there was this half-breed Samaritan Galilean part of the country that, that the, the people of Judah around Jerusalem wanted to retake. They had a missionary zeal. And so people would leave Judea, move north to Galilee, move into towns there, begin worshiping the Lord, trying to retake that and reinstitute the worship of Yahweh in what was now mostly a Gentile country. As a matter of fact, it was often called Galilee of the Gentiles. Kind of getting a picture of what that place was like. So Galilee, and particularly the town of Nazareth, had a reputation for being on the wrong side of the tracks. They were on the far northern side of the hated Samaritan land, and they were as far away from the holiness of Jerusalem and the temple as you could possibly get. I would suggest to you that Galilee at the time of Jesus was the wild west of the promised land. Uncharted territory where nobody was really in charge. 
Which brings us to John chapter 1, if you want to join me there, where all of this comes together in something that Jesus said. John chapter 1, I'll begin reading at verse 43. Jesus had been around the Jordan River in the southern part of the, the country. John the Baptist was there baptizing people. Jesus had gone there and had been baptized himself. Some of John's disciples began to follow Jesus. And in verse 43, we find the next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip along the way, he said to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Now, Bethsaida is a town, a little town on the northeastern shores of the Sea of Galilee. It's in the province of Galilee. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael, probably a friend of his, and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth the son of Joseph. Nazareth. Nazareth. Really? Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? Nathaniel asked. Do you, do you see the expression on his face? He, he spits out that word like it's, it's nasty and naughty. Nazareth. Can anything good come from there? Philip says, come and see. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said to him, or said of him, here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Man, I wish I knew exactly what that, no deceit in that he says what, Whatever comes to mind, he has no filter. He just <laughs> kind of says things like offensive things. I don't, know. I don't know. Here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Oh, Jesus sees things that other people miss. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. You get whiplash when you read that verse. <laughs> Going from saying nothing good can come from this guy's hometown to saying, you're the Son of God. You're the King of Israel. That is quite a transformation, I would say, right? And Jesus recognizes that. Verse 50, Jesus said, you believe, and this is the tone of voice I, I, I think Jesus had to, you believe because I told, told you I saw you under the fig tree? <laughs> really? That's all it took? You will see greater things than that. He then added, very truly I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. It just so happens that Nathanael came from the town of Cana. Remember the town of Cana? In John's Gospel, it's the place where Jesus performed his first miracle, the miracle of 
turning water into wine. Cana was a small town not very far from Nazareth, as a matter of fact. And that's where Nathaniel came from. And I would suspect that just as is the case today, there was probably a rivalry that goes on between towns, between Nazareth and Cana. There were probably some town rivalries. There are football teams. You know, that was, that was the rivalry of the year. And Friday night when that, oh, I guess that they didn't have football. But another thing to keep in mind is that these small towns were probably populated mostly by one or two or three families. Families would stay there, and the children would add a room onto the, uh, dad's house and, and begin uh, having a family, and other siblings would do the same thing, and next thing you knew, you had a, a whole neighborhood that was populated by Jesus's family. And maybe there were two or three other families that did the same kind of thing, and over in Cana, there was a separate set of families that primarily populated that town. And, and so there was, it wasn't just a town rivalry, it was kind of like a family or maybe even a tribe rivalry that would go on. And I suspect that that's part of the, the background that leads Nathaniel to say what he said. I got thinking about uh, the place where my, my parents came from. My mother was raised in southern Ohio, not too far from the border with Kentucky and West Virginia. My dad retired from the army and moved to West Virginia. And we started hearing, as my mom told stories, as we visited in West Virginia, we began hearing these stories of rivalries between Southern Ohio and Kentucky and West Virginia. They would tell jokes about one another because they didn't think of much of one another. So somebody in Southern Ohio would say, what do you have when you have a room with 32 West Virginian women? A full set of teeth. <laughs> Somebody in Kentucky would say, did you hear about that tragedy over there in Scioteville, Ohio? Somebody's porch fell off their mobile home. Why was that a tragedy? Well, because there were 12 hound dogs under the porch. They all got killed. Somebody in, in West Virginia would tell a story about the people in, in you, you know, it would just go on and on like that, right? These rivalries. I'm imagining that's what was going on between Cana and Nazareth. Those who came from the town of Nazareth were called Nazarenes. What do you call people that come from Loudon? Loudonians? Conquered Concordians. Uh, well, anyway, so Nazareth, they were called Nazarenes. And Nazarenes, by anybody from a different town, were thought to be country bumpkins who knew very little of true Jewish worship or ways. To come from Nazareth brought a taint of humility at best and humiliation at worst. And this reputation associated with Nazareth clung to Jesus throughout his life. He's 30 years old. He's just been baptized by his cousin. And Nathaniel says, Nazareth, can anything good come from there? But not only did this reputation cling to Jesus, but Jesus seemed to embrace this reputation, ironically. Jesus' ministry, which was focused largely on the last, the least, 
the lost and the dead looked a lot like Nazareth's reputation, didn't it? So why would our denomination's founding fathers choose this name above all others, I wonder? Phineas Brzee, the first Nazarene pastor, was a Methodist preacher. And at this point in the late 1800s, Methodism had walked away from the doctrine of entire sanctification. And they had all gotten fairly well to do, and so their churches were on the right side of the tracks instead of the wrong side of the tracks, and they didn't want to have much to do with the people that lived on the wrong side of the tracks. And Phineas Brzee said, you know, we can't lose this sanctification emphasis, this preaching, and we can't forget the people that were our neighbors back when we were poor. And so in 1895, Phineas Brzee formed the first Church of the Nazarene in Los Angeles on the wrong side of the tracks. I think the building they used was called the Glory Barn. What comes to mind when you hear Glory Barn? There's the Crystal Cathedral and there's the Glory Barn. Trying to tell where he was headed, right? An intentional choice to identify with the humble people on the wrong side of the tracks. The reputation associated with the town of Nazareth and with the mission of Jesus led Phineas Brzee to call it the Church of the Nazarene. In the historical statement at the beginning of the manual of the Church of the Nazarene, it said that Brzee held that Christians sanctified by faith should follow Christ's example and preach the gospel to the poor. These Nazarenes believed that their time and money should be given to Christ-like ministries for the salvation of souls and the relief of the needy. He believed that purity, entire sanctification, and mission on the wrong side of the tracks equaled holiness. These early churches of the Nazarene ministered to quote-unquote outcasts and the needy, witnessing to God's grace by supporting famine relief in India and establishing orphanages, maternity homes for unwed girls and women, and urban missions that ministered to addicts and the homeless. In the 1920s, the church social ministry uh, shifted to medicine, with hospitals being built in China and India and Swaziland and Papua New Guinea. All this to say that the importance of mission was present from the earliest days of this denomination, the Church of the Nazarene. In the middle of the 20th century, a history that many of us can remember, personal holiness came to overshadow the focus on mission. Entire sanctification, purity, came to overshadow mission. It was at a time when, in many cities, white people were moving out of the cities, white flight, taking up homes in the suburbs, leaving the cities, urban centers, to people who were poor and needy. It would be several decades later when the need for urban evangelism compelled the church to the Church of the Nazarene to rediscover the city at great economic cost. 
They left perfectly good churches and glory barns, sold them and moved to the suburbs, and then a few decades later when they realized that God wanted them on the wrong side of the track, the price had gone up substantially. The glory barns in the cities were much smaller than they had been before. The Church of the Nazarene, like many other denominations, has struggled to be a, no a denomination that walked in Jesus's Nazarene footsteps. Whether we choose to officially join the Church of the Nazarene or not, we're confronted with the choices that Phineas Brzee had to make, though. We're confronted with the choices that Jesus's disciples had to make. Which side of the tracks are we on? In which kind of neighborhoods are we going to minister? To what kind of people are we going to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ? How in both our personal and our corporate lives can we walk in the footsteps of the Nazarene? I, I asked that question this past Thursday evening at our church board meeting. I, I asked a couple questions. I said, in, in your own circle of influence, among your own friends and the people that you spend the most time with, what are the things that are happening that break your heart? And then in the greater conquered area, what are the things that are going on? Who are the populations, the, the things that are happening that just break God's heart? Did you know God's heart could be broken? It can. By sin and injustice and, and prejudice and so many other things. So what are the things in our community that break God's heart? Some of the answers that came out of that conversation... Family dysfunction breaks our heart and it breaks God's heart. Mental illness, untimely deaths, homelessness, addictions, inadequate housing, activities that intentionally compete with Sunday morning church activities the lack of spiritual faithfulness and accountability. These are some of the things that our church board said breaks their heart and breaks the heart of God. When Jesus told Nathanael that he would see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man, he was saying that Nathaniel would see God's greatest glory in places that most people think are a waste of time. Jesus talking to Nathaniel from Cana, who had such a low opinion of the town of Nazareth. This Jesus and Nathaniel and Philip and the other disciples that would spend most of the next three years in Galilee of the Gentiles. Jesus was saying to Nathanael that he would see God's greatest glory, angels ascending and descending. He would see God's greatest glory in places that most people think are a waste of time. Where do we think we're going to see God's greatest glory? Crystal Cathedral. 
Joel Osteen's mega whatever in Houston or wherever. Oh, God's greatest glory. I suspect Jesus would say, no, you're going to see it in Nazareth. You're going to see it on the wrong side of the tracks. Our temptation, our greatest temptation is to avoid situations that are heartbreaking, right? The temptation to live with the easy to get along with people. The, the temptation to spend your time with people that demand nothing of us. That's one of the great temptations, to avoid that which is heartbreaking. The places where the last, the least, the lost, and the dead spend their time. Yet these are the very places where we will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the church of the Nazarene. On which side of the tracks will we choose to spend our time? Philip went and found Nathanael after Philip had had a transforming experience, right? We don't know what that is. But something had changed Philip's life. He had met the Messiah. He had met the Son of God. He had met the most important person in the history of the world. And he wanted his friend Nathaniel to know about it. He wanted his friend to experience the same thing and follow Jesus. The invitation to join Jesus' band of disciples seemed illogical to Nathaniel, though. That makes no sense. Nothing good can come out of Nazareth. But Phys uh, Philip wisely invited him, saying, Come and see. Come and see. I'm not going to be able to convince you with powerful words. Just come and see. Try it. You'll like it. Come find what I found. This lifestyle may seem unreasonable and incredible until we experience it ourselves. The downward way of Jesus makes little sense in our upwardly mobile culture, doesn't it? I leave you with this question. Will we follow the American success story of the poor boy who became rich or the biblical success story of the rich boy who became poor? Let us not follow Nathaniel's dismissive attitude. Can anything good come from Nazareth instead? Let's go and see. Bow your heads with me. Ask yourself the question, where do I like to go when I'm on my day off, want to have some fun? Who are the kind of people that I prefer to spend my time with, that I like to go out to dinner with? If you're like me, it's probably 
in beautiful places. People like me that I enjoy being with. Father, who are the people and where are the places that break your heart? Which are the neighborhoods or the neighbors that obviously need to know Jesus as their Savior and Transformer? Lord, where are you calling us? Which side of the tracks do you want us to spend our time and our lives on? Lord, I know that you're speaking to us. That's what happens when we come and sit under the glory spout. Your Holy Spirit assures us that we are right with you and then calls us deeper. And Lord, we recognize that if we're part of the Church of the Nazarene, that deeper looks like poor people, and addicted people, and sad people, and people with problems and people with dirty clothes and people with filthy tongues and on and on it goes. But Father, we believe that this is where you're calling us. You left your throne in heaven, Jesus, to come to the wrong side of the tracks of the universe, to the planet Earth, to become like us, that we might become like you. So, Lord, this morning we invite you to call us. Even if we're retired, Lord, we invite you to call us. Hmm. Point us in the direction to help us overcome our prejudice to things that look like they're useless and a waste of time. That this week, this month, we might see the glory of God the angels ascending and descending on that person, that neighborhood, that side of the tracks. Fill us with your spirit, Father, because we can't do it without you. Thank you for your willingness to fill us with your vision and your call and your grace. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. We're going to